Thanks, bro. Love you, man. <clears throat> oh, what's up, fam? How's it going? Oh, come on now. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. That just hurt my feelings really bad. Okay, first service. Okay, the early risers had more energy than that. What's up, fam? Thank you. Okay, I feel like I can start now. Okay, awesome. Uh, no, hey, uh, Pastor Stan wanted me to let you guys all know, uh, we are obviously in a building uh, plan and program right now, so we have a new building that's coming up just opposite of us on the other side of the parking lot, and we're hoping that by this week, we will have the elevation sketch uh, drawn up for everyone so you guys can see that and what the building's going to look like. Uh, if you don't like it, don't care. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, we're, we're really, really pumped and really excited. A lot of prayer, a lot of focus has gone into this, and uh, we are really excited about the new facility uh, that we're going to have right here in CUNA uh, for bigger impact, more people that we can touch and change with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a healthy, healthy way. So we are really pumped and excited about that. Again, we should have that within the next week or so. So hopefully... Next Sunday, fingers crossed, uh, you guys will be able to take a look at that. Uh, if it looks good, I'll take the credit. Um, if it looks bad, you can talk to my wife. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, but hey, I'm really excited to share today. Uh, again, Pastor Stan, my friend, my pastor, thank you for opening your pulpit to a dumb kid like me. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope you can enjoy the day off. Uh, this, this week, uh, pastors, uh, all us pastors on staff are heading out to Twin Falls. Uh, we'll spend the next couple days at a pastor's conference, uh, which is really exciting and really awesome, really fun, uh, but just a time of refreshing. So I'm glad that pastor can have today to kind of prepare and get ready for the refreshing that he's going to receive in the next couple days. So if you could, just keep him in your prayers, him and Chris, as we go to this pastor's conference. We really appreciate it a whole lot. Well, as we get started, I, I got a question for you, and uh, it's going to be out of the blue here. It's okay. Uh, have you ever gone doorbell ditching before? Come on. Yeah. Those of you who rose your hands and laughed, okay, are cool. The ones who didn't laugh or didn't raise their hands, it's because you've been doorbell ditched, okay, and you're angry about it. You're still bitter. It's okay. We're going to pray for you at the end of service. It's going to be wonderful. Um, but uh, there, there's these kids. We live right here in Tomorrow, the uh, subdivision, not Tomorrow. That's the future. Uh, so the Tomorrow subdivision right here. And um, these kids a couple weeks ago, three, four, I don't know, a month ago, whatever it was, uh, they were going on and they were doorbell ditching. And uh, I, I was getting a kick out of it. I thought it was hilarious. Like, I was that teenager, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But um, I, I love doorbell ditching. I think it's fun. But uh, you see these kids, they were amateurs. Because, <laughs> obviously, come on. They, they were going around, and they were hitting the exact same house again and again and again and again. Like, I think even multiple times in one night. And, I mean, come on, guys. Like, let me teach you a lesson, okay? Like, let me show you how to do it correctly, okay? Um, but anyways, Pete, he's my neighbor. Uh, he's an Irish man. He's got the best accent in the entire world. I could seriously just sit there and like give him a book, like the biggest book in the world. And be like, please read this to me. Like, it'd be amazing. <laughs> but anyways, he, uh, he's sitting there and he's like, it's not happening to me again. I'm gonna get these little dudes back bad. And so he did. He hid in his truck in his driveway. He had like a cherry Coke and some Reese's peanut butter cups and he just hung out and he just waited for them to show up. And sure enough, amateurs show up to the same house again and like three, four nights in a row. He jumps out of the truck, acts like he's going to attack them, just goes crazy, scares them half to death. It was a wonderful story. It was amazing, right? Like it was great. But I felt in my heart, I needed to teach them how to doorbell ditch correctly. I haven't been able to meet these uh, little hellions yet. I'm just kidding. Uh, but if I did, I would tell them how I doorbell ditch. You see, I was a teenager and I grew up uh, in Sacramento and also 
on Beale Air Force Base right there in Yuba City. So any Air Force families, what's up, right? So that's how I grew up. We did not have backyards in the Air Force, right? It's just like a little patio thing. Um, but anybody who's anybody can just walk up to any backsliding door and treat it like a front door. Like it, there's no gate, there's no nothing. Uh, you can just walk up to it. And so we took that as a very unfair advantage for us as teenagers. And so we said, we're actually just going to doorbell ditch. We're going to like house ditch somebody. Okay. We didn't have a word for it. So there's a word for it. Okay. And, uh, we would walk up to these houses and we would get enough people to surround the house, the back, back windows, the, the bedroom windows, the sliding door in the back, the front door, the garage. Okay. I don't know if you've ever kicked a garage before. One, don't, you'll probably break it. And two, it is the loudest sound known to humankind. Okay. And so we would surround a house. I'm sorry. If, if you lived on Beale Air Force Base and I hit your house, I'm sorry, but it was all in good fun. Okay. And so anyways, we would surround a house and then we had a guy up front, uh, whoever it was, just whoever's at the front door, your job is to yell one, two, three. And at three, we would bang and pound and kick all over the house, the windows. I mean, we would completely obliterate the house. Okay. We would do everything and anything we could to completely wake up, not just them, but their neighbors. Okay. We wanted to make a sound and we wanted to scare them. And we wanted to be like doorbell ditch crew of the century, right? books about it and years later write a sermon about it okay so like <clears throat> it was awesome like I, we loved it it was great but one time in particular I remember this uh this one moment and um I got my car I had a 1991 um Mitsubishi Eclipse generation one okay I thought I was Paul Walker from Fast and the Furious like <laughs> clearly I mean obviously come on okay so anyways I thought I was Fast and the Furious and I was like guys here's the plan Tonight, we're going out, we're going doorbell ditching our style and we're gonna hide in my car because my car was registered in Texas because it was military. And so being a car that is registered in Texas, being in California, I could have a limo tent on my car and the cops couldn't say nothing about it. I just looked like a visitor in California. So glad I'm out of that place. But anyway, so I had this car and I don't care if you had a flashlight, you put it up to the window, you are not gonna see who or what is inside of the car? There's just not a chance about it. And so I was like, guys, we're gonna hide in my car after we hit a house and then we'll drive around the corner. We'll hit another house and we'll hide in the car. It's like, that was our plan for the night. So we get out of our car, out of my car. We find that house, like the perfect house. Like the windows are clean. There's no bushes in the way. A perfect walkway to the front door. You don't have to jump over anything on your way, uh, running away. Like it was like the house of houses. And I was like, guys, this is it. The Lord has blessed us tonight. And so we get out of my car. We park it down like a couple, um, not, not a couple blocks, but a couple houses down. And uh, we get around the house and we yell, one, two, three. We hit this house so hard. The windows, I think we were even kicking the, the dry, the, the wall on the spackle. It doesn't, they probably didn't even hear that, but we just want to do everything we could to just completely blow up this house. We did. It was awesome. And so what we did is we hit the house and we ran back to my car. And we dove inside my car. I locked the doors. I'm thinking, yes, we are safe. We are sound. We are secure. This is amazing. And we see my buddy Eric come running around the corner. He didn't make it. And I'm sitting here going, hold on. We made it to the car, bro. You didn't make it. That's not my fault. Okay? And there is no way on God's green earth, I am going to unlock this car and let you in and let all the lights turn on. You guys know what I'm talking about. You open the doors and the lights turn on, right? And then wait 10 seconds for the lights to turn off again. Sorry, bro, but you might die tonight. 
I was letting him have, I just, bro, sorry. He's sitting there banging on our window like he's doorbell ditching me now. He's like, unlock your door, unlock your door. And I'm like, dude, no, like not happening. We're all in the car. We're quiet. We're not even looking at Eric. We're like, nope, no, just, nope. Sorry, bro. You didn't make it in time. And so have you guys ever seen like the Acme uh, cartoons? Like Saturday mornings, right? Like totally unbelievable stuff, right? So Eric is, is by my car. We're not letting them in. There's a like white pickup in front of us. And it's got all tools and all kinds of stuff in the bed of the truck. He just runs head first, dives into the bed of the truck. And like an Acme cartoon, stuff just goes flying everywhere. Like it was like beautiful to see. It was hilarious. It was great. And long behold, the dad comes out of the house. And I'm like, oh, this is it. We're going to watch Eric die right in front of us, guys. Like, pop the popcorn. This is going to be great, right? Like, not me. It's him, right? And so he, this, the dad is marching up and down the street, holding his Louisville slugger bat, ready to just, like, take us out. Here I am in my car thinking, I'm safe. I'm secure. The door is locked, right? Looking back now, obviously, the dude could have just broken my window and, like, dragged me out and, like, beaten me mercilessly over the head, Okay. Because I thought I was safe and I thought I was secure inside of my car. He even walked right by us. He even walked by the truck where Eric was, was laying in. And I don't know how he didn't see Eric. We did not get caught. And we certainly didn't learn our lesson because we just went right down the street and hit another house. Right? <laughs> but I, but I'm, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is I'm in my car and I'm thinking I'm safe. I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm totally fine. The doors are locked. Nobody can get in here. Dude, it's a 1991 Mitsubishi Eclipse. The doors are barely hanging on. All he had to do was just open the door. Like... <laughs> The lock is not secure in any way, shape, or form, or he could form, or he could have just taken the bat and just like broken all the windows on my car, right? Now the joke's on me, and then I've got a car with no windows, right? Like he could have done anything he wanted, but I felt safe and I felt a security about my locked door. And this isn't anything new. Right? We all feel safe and secure behind locked doors. It's why you lock your doors at night when you go to bed. You make sure your sliding glass door is locked now because you know the doorbell ditcher of the century lives in your town, right? So you're going to lock your doors. It's what you do. We find security in a locked door. We, we find security in a bank because a bank has a safe. It's got a vault. It's locked. It's safe, right? However, all the break-ins and all the robberies would completely shut down any idea that a locked door is anything of safe. It just proves it all wrong. There's, there's, no, a locked door means nothing. It, 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 it's a challenge, exactly. It's a challenge, right? And that's about, that's about all it is. It just delays someone maybe getting in a little longer. That's all it does. But we find a security in a locked door. And yet I, tonight when I go to bed, I will still lock all the doors of my house and I will make sure my house is secure because I find comfort in a locked door, probably much like you. I want my doors locked. And this isn't anything new. This has been around forever, which gets us right into our text for today. John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, this is a specific day. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So we're still hugging on to the Easter story here a couple weeks later, still looking at the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. It says the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. Now when it says the doors were shut, what it's implying in the original language is the doors are shut they're locked and they're secure, meaning it's very difficult for these doors to open right now. 
It's going to take a whole lot of work. They probably did extra. They put the chairs. They put a dresser in front of it. Like they did everything they could to make sure that this door could not and would not open from the outside. They wanted to make sure that they were safe in their little room, their little hut, wherever it is that they are. They're hiding, it says, for fear of the Jews. And so they lock the door. So why are they in this locked room and why are they so pertinent about making sure the door is locked? Well, let's recount the last five days for the disciples. Let's go back. This is Sunday. Let's go back to Wednesday for the disciples. Let's go look at what's going on for them there. They have Jesus and they're having the Passover meal. And they're sitting there, they're hanging out, and Jesus is introducing them to communion. So if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know exactly what communion is. And so Jesus is having communion with them. He's having his last supper with them. And he's like, hey, I'm about to be betrayed. And Judas slips away. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays for a couple hours, a few hours, tries to keep the disciples awake. They keep on falling asleep. And Judas shows up and betrays Jesus right there in front of the other disciples. Jesus is now in custody for the Roman Empire and for the the high priest. They have got him in custody. He is a prisoner at this moment. The disciples are confused. They don't know what's going on. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks. So if you've been here, you know that that the disciples thought Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government and bring freedom to Israel. And he was going to be the new king for Israel and Roman influence would not be there anymore. Roman oppression would not be there anymore. And they'd be free people living in Jerusalem. That's the the disciples. That was their thought process. But all of a sudden, their king, their savior is now chained up in prison. So they're having a really hard time wrapping their mind around this and they don't know what is going on. And so the next day, it's Thursday now, they see Jesus on trial. They're watching Jesus go through all these mockings, all these questionings. Uh, They see Jesus get taken away to secret rooms with Pilate. And they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on with this guy. Who is he? And why do the Pharisees and the high priest want him dead so bad? And so Jesus is going through a trial. He's going through questioning. And eventually leads up to the point where Jesus is, is sitting there. like He's like, I find nothing wrong with him. But... Go ahead and give them the 40 minus one because they thought 40 lashes or 40 whips of this style of beating would kill a man. So they said, give them the 40 minus one and call it good and then set them free. And so Pilate asked that of them. They take Jesus to the whipping post and the disciples are all there. They're watching this happen. Their king, their savior, the one who is supposed to overthrow Rome and be the king in Israel. And they're watching all of this take place and they're doing nothing like, they're, they're not just like, hold on, no, wait, do it to me instead. No, they're like doing nothing. They're just literally standing by watching it all take place. So that they're, they're one of their best friends betrays him. They watch him get beaten. And then, then not only that, they bring Jesus out after he's been beaten to a pulp. And they bring out a guy named Barabbas. And, he, and Pilate says, hey, it's custom. I release a prisoner to you this time of the year. So do you want Barabbas, the murderer, the thief, the crazy criminal dude? Or do you want Jesus? The one who claims to be your king. And they cheered and clapped and celebrated when Barabbas was set free. You see, Jesus was supposed to be treated fairly and justly. However, Barabbas was treated like Jesus should have been. And Jesus was now treated like Barabbas. And Barabbas was set free while Jesus took on the punishment, the sin, took on the pain, took on all the guilt for Barabbas in that moment. And now Jesus is sitting there in Barabbas' place and he's condemned to die now. And so they crucify him. 
They send Jesus to Golgotha. The disciples, again, are watching this all take place. Hold on a second. Our king, the one who's supposed to overthrow Rome and set Israel free, yes, Emmanuel, God with us, is on a cross? And he's, he's dying? And then he dies. They watch him. They watch him get stabbed with a spear in his side. Can, can you imagine for just one minute where these disciples are? Mentally, emotionally, they are hurting they are confused. They're grieving. Their best friend is dead. And now Mary comes out screaming, hey, he's alive. They don't know what to do. They're lost and confused. So they do the only thing that they know how to do, run and hide. They run to a lock room. They lock the door. They secure the door. And they're like, nobody is going to find us because why? They are afraid of the Jews. Why would you be afraid of the Jews? Well, they just watched Jesus die unjustly. And so they're thinking, if they killed him, they'll kill me too. He did nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. They killed him. I was one of his closest and best friends. They'll probably do the same thing to me too. So they run and hide. The answer is actually right here in Matthew chapter 27. Check this out. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that is Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said, okay, go. You have your guard. Make, make it as secure as you know how. And when they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. They set a seal, meaning if the stone gets moved, you'll be able to see that the seal is broken. And so they are thinking that then this grave is secure. And the disciples now, after Jesus has risen from the dead, all they're thinking is, they killed him. They think I stole his body. They're going to kill me too. I'm going to go through the exact same thing. I'm going to get the 40 minus one. I will probably get a crown of thorns just because they'll want to do it to me too, because why not? And they're going to crucify me. And so the disciples are scared. They're terrified. Mentally, emotionally, they are torn because of the things we've just been talking through. They are scared. They are not just having a moment of fear. It's like they're literally in fear. It's not like they're like just afraid. No, they're like trying to make a bed and find comfort in fear. They're thinking, oh, if we're just together and we have a locked door, maybe we can find comfort even though we're terrified. No, you're not going to find any comfort in that. I've played hide and go seek. I always get found. Okay? Always. But this, that's the problem. Is that they're thinking that they can hide forever. They're thinking, oh, I can just stay here. I'm safe. I, I'm, I'm protected. The door is locked. Nobody can get in here. I, I'm safe. Well, what's going to happen to me? No, they're not going to find me. The Pharisees are on the hunt. The high priest is going crazy. Pilate's asking questions. And yet the Pharisees paid the guards off. Because the guards saw. Like, no, he's alive. And like, hey, be quiet about it. Here's some money. Right there, the Pharisees could have brought salvation to all of Israel. He said, no, we were wrong, guys. He really is the king. The guards who were there to protect it are the ones who saw him get up. He's, he's really the king. But they had no humility inside of them to accept it. So even though they knew the truth, they just paid the guys off to shut up. And now they're just trying to cover it up, and they, they are on the hunt for the disciples. So the disciples hide. They, they find comfort in their fear together, is what they're trying to do. They won't find comfort in fear. And what happens is Jesus just shows up in the room, the locked room, the locked door. He didn't knock. He didn't ask. He didn't find a secret window. 
He just shows up. Let me tell you something right now. Jesus does not need a key to enter our fears. This is the one time we see Jesus not be a gentleman as we know and love. He doesn't ask permission. He just shows up. And I love this about him because it shows it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the disciples. The disciples are doing the exact opposite of what we as Christians would say. No, a life of faith, right? And they are completely doing the opposite and running in fear. And yet Jesus shows up in their fear. Right there in the room. Just boom, there he is. And I love this about Jesus. He just shows up. He doesn't ask any permission. You see, speaking of faith, I, growing up and, and even through Bible college, I had this twisted view of faith. I grew up in a denomination um, that faith was even in the name of the denomination of Christians. And, and yet I asked questions about what faith was and I could never get a solid, clear answer of what faith really is. And I, so I struggled with it. I mean, can you imagine you're, you're in Bible college and you want to be a pastor one day and you're like, I don't even know what faith is. Right? And I'm struggling with this, trying to figure out what does faith even mean? Even after Bible college, I'm like seeking God, like, God, what is true and genuine faith? Because I used to have these type of thoughts. I used to say these things and people used to say these things to me. Let me, let me give you two examples. One of them is this. You didn't get that prayer answered because you didn't have enough faith. I used to think that. I used to think about my prayers. I used to say that to people, cold and heartless. How wrong is that? You didn't, you didn't get your, your answers, or your, your answer, your, wow, I can't talk. You didn't get your prayers answered because you didn't have enough faith. Another thought that I would have and things that people would say to me and I'd say to other people is, well, if you would have had more faith, God would have delivered you sooner. How wrong is that? Please show me chapter and verse uh, where, where it says that. And I would love to take some great notes on it because that's not in here. I had a twisted view of what faith was. I thought faith was some mysterious uh, uh, thing that just makes God move for me. Like if I have enough faith, God would be like, oh my gosh, right? He transforms like, like Optimus Prime or something and shows up on the scene. That, that, it, like seriously, that's literally what I would think of. I, I think I even used that as an analogy one time preaching in Bible college. Like God's like a transformer, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, like God, forgive me. But I had this twisted view of what faith was. None of that is faith. What is faith? Faith is just an agreement that God is good, that he loves me, and he will do all that he said he will do. That's faith. That, that's, that's all it takes to believe, is I believe that God is who he says he is, and he will do all that he said he will do. It's a simple trust. Actually, looking in the Bible and looking at the words of Jesus, he never really ever encourages people for great faith. He says, if you just have faith of a mustard seed. We talked about that on Palm Sunday. If you have faith of a mustard seed, you'll say this mountain be removed and cast in the sea and it will obey you. He didn't say if you have faith the size of Mount Everest. No, he said you have faith of a mustard seed. So when Jesus corrects his disciples throughout the gospels and says you have little faith, what he's really saying is, dude, you have so little faith that you have no faith. Because if you had faith of a mustard seed, the smallest seed you could ever possibly imagine, everything is open to you. Everything is available to you with faith of a mustard seed. It's just agreeing that he's good, that he loves me. He is who he says he is, and he will do all that he said he will do. That's faith. A simple trust in God. Not some mysterious thing that makes him move for me. Let me tell you right now, his love for me makes him move for me. Because my faith cannot move God. No, I can't make God do anything. If my faith could make God move, there's some people that I had some problems with, they'd be dead right now, Okay. <laughs> No, my faith does not make God move. Where was, where was I and where was my faith when he laid the foundations of this world? 
Where was I and where was my faith when he called the land from the sea and said, here, your proud wave, stop. Where, where was I and where was my faith when he said every star in the sky and called them all by name? Where was my faith? Where was my faith on April 1st, 2005, that afternoon when I was running from him? My faith was nowhere to be present, but he sought me out and found me. See, he wasn't lost. I was lost. My faith wasn't there for him to come and find me, yet he did. God does not need my faith to do anything. He does not need your faith to do anything. He's God. Otherwise, he'd be limited by your potential. No. Unlimited potential is in him. If I just agree that he is good, that he is who he says he is and will do all that he said he will do. That's simple faith right there. To break it down as simply as I could. It's a simple trust in him. So disciples are in this room and they're hiding because they have no faith right now. The the Pharisees even remembered that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. They're the ones who said, hey, put a guard there because he said he's going to rise from the dead. The disciples, the ones closest to him who sat under him every single day, did not remember that he would do, do that. Did not remember that he would die and three days later rise from the dead. Yet the Pharisees, the ones who hated him the most, remembered that. And so the disciples are hiding in this room. And let's, let's be real here. What are they doing? I, I would say they're trying to find comfort together. But at the same time, being a human, if people are in the city that are trying to kill me, and I don't live in that city, like I don't have a home in that city, I'm probably not going to stay in that city. If I were the disciples, this isn't, I can't find this scripture and verse for you, but just understanding human behavior, I would be planning to escape from Jerusalem. I'd be trying to find out how to get out of there. Like, hey, okay, how can I get home? I want to go back to Galilee, okay? I want to get out of here because I don't want to be here because here in Jerusalem, they're going to find me, they're going to torture me, they're going to kill me. So if I were one of the disciples, and again, I can't prove this in the Bible, but just being a human, yeah, if people were after me to kill me and I don't live in that town, why would I stay there? I'd probably be planning an escape. I'm probably trying to get out of there. The disciples are terrified of the Jews for what we just talked about. They think they're going to find them and kill them. But I wonder if for just one second, can we go somewhere real fast? And I want you to think about this. I wonder if the disciples are hiding from the Jews, but at the same time, I wonder if they're hiding from Jesus. See, the reason I think this is being a human, I understand human behavior. I'm by no means a psychology expert or major at all. But just being a human, I, 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 I get this. Because if the one who, the past five days, I just completely let down, I betrayed my friend turned him in. I denied him three times. I watched him get beat. I watched him get crucified. I watched him at the trials and I did nothing. I wonder if for just one second here, were the disciples feeling safe from the Jews, but also safe from a risen king? Because what were they expecting in this moment? We left him. We deserted him. We abandoned him. We treated him like we knew nothing about him. Peter even cussed about him. And so if Jesus finds us, is, what's he going to say? Where were you? You let me down. You abandoned me? You, my friends, the ones who for the past three years, you've seen every miracle that's ever been recorded, every miracle that's not recorded. You saw it all and yet you abandoned? I think that's what they're expecting to find when Jesus meets them. I think they're expecting for Jesus to come in and rebuke them and yell at them, scream at them, and give them the phrase we all have heard so many times in the gospels, ye of little faith. And I wonder if they're feeling safe saying, hey, the door's locked, nobody can get in. Even Jesus, we're safe. Because isn't this exactly what I do? Isn't that exactly what you do? We're going through this on on Wednesday nights right now in the the book of Genesis. 
And if you're not, if you're not coming Wednesday nights, I'm tell you right now, get here. Pastor Stan is killing Wednesday nights right now. It's awesome. Genesis is amazing. But Adam and Eve did this. They messed up. And so what'd they do? They hid. Again, I have no scriptural backing to say that they felt safe from Jesus, but just being a human being. Yeah, there's times where I think I felt safe from Jesus. Like I messed up. I looked at that. I did that. I said that. I didn't pray. I didn't seek him. Instead, I just did all these other things. And me and my misunderstanding the faith that he's good, I ran and hid. I think the disciples are probably doing the same thing here. Again, I, I can't prove it. Just me being a human, it's what I do. It's what Adam and Eve did from the very beginning. They sinned. The first thing they did is they hid. Jesus is alive, and the first thing they do is hide. I mess up, and the first thing I do is hide. I cover it up. I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't mess up. I know. It's all good. It's all good. And we hide, and we try to cover it up. Just like I felt I was safe from an angry dad with a baseball bat that night. Thinking, he can't find me. He could have found me very easily. But we feel safe because the door is locked. And I wonder if they felt safe because they thought they had locked Jesus out. Is he upset with me? Why? Because they're feeling the same thing you and I have always felt. Guilt and fear of rejection. It's like the two most hated emotions in, in, human, in humanity. Guilt and fear of rejection. None of us want to feel guilty. None of us want to be rejected. It's why we find a close group of friends and we stick to them. And it's why some of us don't ever reach out to find friends in the first place is because we're just afraid we'll be rejected for who we are. No. God is not here to bring guilt onto your life and he's certainly not here to reject you. He's here to love you. He's here to be with you. You see, when Jesus shows up in the room, here's my biblical foundation for this statement. Jesus shows up in the room and he says, peace be with you. Now the word be is added in the English language to help us Americans understand what is going on here. But be is actually not in the original phrase. The actual phrase is peace with you. And when you say it that way, all of a sudden my mind and my heart go somewhere else. You see, peace be with you is a proclamation that you will have peace in your life. However, peace with you tells me between you and I, there's peace. And so the disciples who are probably expecting a rebuke, who are probably expecting to get yelled at, who are probably expecting to get corrected, the exact opposite happens and they hear nothing but peace with you. Between you and I, there's nothing but peace. I love you, you love me, this is great, we're homies and we're happy to be, right? Like, I just made that up on the spot, that was awesome. Hot diggity dog, right? So, that's all they hear is, they don't hear anything else. They don't hear a correction, they don't hear a, where the heck were you, dude? They hear peace with you. God wants nothing but peace with you. I don't know everyone's story in this room, I don't know where you are. But if Jesus were standing physically on this stage right now and you've been running and you've been hiding from him, he's not going to yell at you. He's not going to correct you. He's not going to scream at you. He's going to look you dead in the eye and say, peace with you. That's all he wants. He wants peace with you. Between you and him, he doesn't want to fight in an argument. He just wants love, peace, and acceptance. Continuing on in our story here, John chapter 20, verse 20 through 23 it says, when he had said this, when he had said, peace with you, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace with you. And as the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
He says this phrase, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. Just a side note, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. On the, the, the phrase where he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they've been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Uh, mainly because it's just a reinstatement of what he already said. As the Father sent me, I now send you. So go and tell people they're forgiven. Basically, all he's saying is, is you're not like a little pope that walks around forgiving people's sins, okay? All he's saying is, hey, if you go and tell people they're forgiven, they're forgiven. However, if you don't go tell people, as I am sending you, if you don't go and get sent, they won't know their sins are forgiven, so therefore their sins can't be forgiven. That's all he's saying. Okay, it's just your job, my job is to go tell people that they're forgiven. Because if you don't, then how can they be forgiven? That's all he's saying. Okay, so don't, don't, don't read into that any other way. That's all he's saying. You don't have some special power to forgive sins. It can sound confusing, but that's all he's saying. Anyways, continuing on here. So Jesus didn't just announce peace with them. His very presence in the room brought peace peace. It changed the whole vibe. They went from gloomy, darkness, fear, rejection, guilt, grief, to all of a sudden they are a kid on Christmas morning. They are celebrating and clapping and going crazy because they just got the RC car they've always wanted. They got Jesus back from the dead. They are going crazy. Now why? Because his very presence in the room changed the atmosphere. I love that we sing those songs about his presence in the room because it reminds us, no, he is here. He, he's right here. In the, we can't physically see him right now. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I can't physically see him. But you know what? Jesus is very much as much as in this room as he was in that room with the locked door. He's that much here right now as well. It's who he is. David, the psalmist said, God, if I go to hell, you're there. I cannot escape your presence. There's nowhere I can go to run from you. Not even a locked door. Nowhere I can go, Jesus. And his very presence came in the room and changed the atmosphere. These dudes, the disciples who, let me remind you, are complete failures. They're the ones who completely deserted him. We've already talked about this today. They, they left him. They, they are failures all through the book of Acts. You can see their, their future failures and what they do even after this moment. Peter and, and Paul get in a fight. Yeah, that's in the Bible. It's crazy. Okay. The two guys who wrote some of the books in the Bible get in a fight with each other. It's awesome. It'd make a great movie, right? <laughs> These guys are failures. Failures should never stop you. you. They're failures. You're a failure. I'm a failure. We're all failures. And yet somehow God still shows up and brings his peace in the room. He doesn't care about your failures. He doesn't care about your past sin. He doesn't care about your past mistakes. If you think God cares about that, you are sadly mistaken. Your sin does not make God embarrassed. He died for it. God, I did this. It's like he's surprised. It's not like he didn't see it happen. He was there. He saw it. Why? Because he's just as much in this room as he is at the room at your house when no one's around. He's just as much to be the person looking at the phone with you when you're scrolling through social media. He's just as much with you when you're driving down the street cussing out the guy who cut you off. He is with you. He's with you in spite of your failures, in spite of your mistakes, in spite of my sin, my mistakes, God is with me. He wants to be with me. He wants to be with you. The, you're the reason why he did all of this is to have peace with you, to sit in the room with you. And the disciples are complete and utter failures. They even take it a step further after he rose from the dead, still not looking at the grand scheme of things. They said, Jesus, now is the time that you'll deliver Israel. Like, are you going to set up the physical throne now in Jerusalem and overthrow Rome? Yeah. 
Is this that time? The disciples were so narrow-minded on just God's people. No, God's plan of redemption was for humanity, that he would enter every locked door of human pain, that he would enter every locked door of human oppression and sadness and every, every locked door of human sin, and he'd invade it with what? His peace. That's his, that's his whole goal in all of this, to bring peace to you and I. He just wants to be with us. Jesus, now are you going to overthrow the, the Roman Empire? No, no. My plan is for everyone. Israel was just a starting place. And as the Father sent me, I now send you. Go and tell them they are forgiven. And God, unlock every door of my heart because you don't need a key. Get in here. Get in my place. And let there be peace in my heart. And I know for some, shout out to, to Becky and Brandon. We talked about this the other day. Um, I know for some, it's really hard to believe because we don't see. Like, I grew up thinking I have to see in order to believe. And I'm in good company when I think that way, actually. I don't want to condemn anybody who might be feeling like a doubting Thomas. Um, because we're going to read that story right now. But if you feel like you need to see to believe, I'm, I'm going to bring some hope to you today. Check this out as the story goes on. But Thomas, John chapter 20, verse 24 one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails. <clears throat> um, oh, I lost my place in the thing here. Whatever. Uh, and, and I put my hand into his side. I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Get this. And Thomas with him. And Jesus came in, the doors having been shut. Obviously, there's enough commotion in the city to cause these dudes to still hide. And this time, Thomas is with them. This time, Thomas is in the room. He wasn't off by himself hiding somewhere else. He is with the other 10 disciples at this moment now. And all 11 of them are finally together in this room, still with the locked door, even though Jesus already showed up and revealed himself to all of them except for Thomas. And so Jesus shows up in this room, the door having been shut, and he stood in their midst and he said this again, peace with you. And he said to Thomas, I love this. He just turns right to him. He says, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responded, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see, yet believe. And for the past 2,000 years, countless millions of people have believed without ever seeing. So for us to say, I need to see in order to believe, I'm sorry, you're not that special. Jesus did it one time to Thomas, probably because Thomas is one of the disciples, okay? So in order for us to say, I need to see to believe, I'm sorry, we as humans always think it'll take more than it actually will. Growing up, I used to think, I need to see God. I need to see Jesus if I'm going to believe in him. No, it doesn't take that much. To think that over the past 2,000 years, millions have believed without seeing, yet I'm someone special who needs to see in order to believe for my faith to be unlocked? No. I, I don't need to see. You don't need to see anything. Because the moment I was addicted and struggling and in pain and in hurt and realizing how stupid I really was, I found a peace that was incomparable. 
My addictions broke. My, my desires literally in an instant. And I know that God doesn't do that for everyone, but maybe for me, that's what it was going to take. God knows what it's going to take for every individual. So you have a lost kid. You have a, a lost mother or a lost dad or an aunt or uncle or someone who's running away from God. He knows what it's going to take. It's not going to be seeing him. They're not that special to have to see him to believe. I know they're special. I know, I know, I know. But what I'm saying is to think that we have to see in order to believe, sorry, it's not true. We as humans think it always take way more than it actually will. And actually, Thomas took it a step further than just seeing. He said, I need to see him, but I need to put my finger into the nail hole. I need to put my hand into the side where his spear once was. That's what Thomas said. Yet at the sight of him, he falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. The Bible never records that Thomas ever touched him. It never says that he touched the nail hole, that he put his hand into his rib cage. Doesn't, not there. See, we always think it'll take more than it actually will. Thomas thought he'd have to touch him. But at the sight of him, he fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Don't ever think it's going to take more than it actually will. Because in a moment, my life changed. And I thought I'd have to see him. I'd have to, I'd have to see something physically or see a miracle happen in front of me. No, all of that went out the window. And the moment I did actually step into a moment of faith, all of a sudden I did start seeing some miracles happen. But it was after a moment of me saying, yeah, he's real. He's really here. He's really there, but he's also really here. This is amazing. And it was after that. Then I've seen tumors fall off people. I've seen the lame walk. I've seen the blind get sight. I've seen some amazing things in life. And it was never to prove my faith. It was always in a supplement of. And that's how God works. He has nothing to prove to anybody. He created you. (laughs) He's got you in the palm of his hand. The other day, I I got my dream car. And you're going to laugh at me, but that's okay. I accept it. It's a 1996 Ford Bronco. Man four-wheel drive. I'm trying to find somewhere to get stuck with my wife and that thing. That thing is sick, man. It is awesome. I can't wait. Like, I want to take a four-wheel four driving and four-wheel driving. You know what I'm saying. I'll take it out on the dirt, okay? And uh, I, I love it. I think it's awesome. And I'm super, super happy to have it. I think, it, I, like I said, I just think it's cool. I, my, I, growing up, I had a, uh, a friend, a neighbor, and his dad had a Bronco. And I was like, you have the coolest dad in the world, man. You want to trade? Like, no, I'm just kidding. I love you, dad. But I was just like, man, that's the coolest guy in the world. It's a truck, but it's a convertible. Oh my gosh, right? Like, it's amazing. I knew as a kid, I was always got to have one, right? And, and so I got this truck and it being older, okay, I got to take care of it, okay? Um, no drag racing, like my Eclipse back in the day. Um, but also I, I got to take care of it mechanically. I got to take care of it um, on the inside. You know, I got to make sure the exterior is good. The interior is good and clean. And the engine is running sound. Actually, just the other day, you're going to laugh at me. My dream car, it wouldn't start in the parking lot. So <laughs> we had to replace the starter, me, Brandon, and Russ. It was awesome, my homie. And uh, that thing fired right up and I uh, took it home. It was great. Um, got a new starter in my truck, right? Why? I'm restoring it, okay? Like, I'm doing my feeble attempt to restore this Bronco as best I can, nice and slow, and just, you know, find things like, oh, I want to do this now. I want to do this. Um, so I'm, I'm having a great time working on my car. I never understood how people could sit out there in their garage for, like, hours working on a car until I got a Bronco and realized, no, it, it, it's not just fun to take care of a car. It just takes time. It takes a lot of time, right? So anyways, I got, I got this truck, and I think it's cool, and I'm restored. And I think from time to time, we all need restoration. I think every single one of us, uh, you know, the clutch stops working the way it's supposed to. 
And hey, I, I just need, I need a little upkeep on my life, on my heart, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. I, I got to kind of make sure I'm being restored at the same time. And I think that just as I'm restoring this Bronco, that God restores the faith of the broken. Because that's exactly what he did with Thomas. Thomas said, unless I see and touch, I will not believe. He won't accept it. He just watched his best friend die right in front of him. So no, I'm not going to believe that. Even though all 10 of you are saying he's alive. No, I'm sorry. No, he's dead. Guys, you're tripping. He's dead. He can't accept it. He won't accept it. And yet Jesus shows up and he doesn't even yell at him. He doesn't correct him. I like like what Becky said to me this past week. He didn't even tell Thomas, you're going to hell. No, he said, Thomas, just don't be unbelieving. Just be believing now. Just trust. I've told you this so many times that I would rise from the dead. I think you just forgot. So Thomas, it's okay, bro. Just trust me. And he restores the faith of this broken disciple, right? Why? Because we always think it'll take more than it really will. It doesn't take that much to believe. Faith of a mustard seed to agree that what? God is good that he loves me and he will do all that he said he will do. If I just trust him in that, salvation is a free gift for every single one of us. Freely given to us. So my question for all of us today, I asked this question of me and so I feel like since I asked it of me and I studied and prayed this thing out that I'm gonna ask it of you, why not? How's your marriage really doing? How are you as a husband, how are you really treating your wife? You as a wife, how are you really treating your husband? As parents, how are you really treating your kids? Because what I'm getting at here is I think it's really easy to show up to church on Sunday or Wednesday and to put the smiles on, right? Get out there by an Easter wall and take a picture as a, as a family, right? Post all the social media. All is good, all is happy, all is healthy. This is great. When in reality, we're just done with each other. But we've got it locked away behind this door thinking nobody sees I've got to tuck away. Nobody sees this. How I treat my kids, nobody sees this. How I treat my spouse, nobody sees this. That sin that I think I've been hiding so well for so long, thinking nobody sees it. Question, what have you locked away? What, what have I locked away that I think nobody sees? What have I locked away that I think I'm hiding from God himself? What have you locked away that you think you're hiding so well from him in his presence? You, there's nothing you can hide from him. Just as Jesus doesn't need a key to enter your fears, he doesn't need a key to enter anything. He he can enter right into the mess and the sin that we are in and and the hardship that we are in. And I'm not trying to make any spouse or parent or person feel bad in this moment, but I am trying to challenge us. Have I been putting on a face, uh, putting on a mask and, and locking this door behind me thinking nobody, nobody in, nobody can see, nobody hears about it. Let me tell you something, just have the conversation with God already. Because if you were to go in there secretly and unlock the door and go in there and shut the door and lock it behind you, you turn around and find out Jesus is already in the room. He doesn't need you to open the door to him. He's sitting there sipping coffee on the lawn chair just waiting for you to have the conversation. Are you ready to talk about it yet? He shows up to the disciples. You ready to talk about it yet? Here I am. As the Father sent me, I send you. Go tell people they are forgiven. And that, that conversation right there fuels them for life. That even Peter himself would die on a cross upside down. Because why? He had an encounter with peace in a locker room. What's the locker room of your life? Look, I, I don't know what the hidden thing is that you're hiding. 
I'm not even saying that you are hiding something, but I think all of us as humans got a little something we're trying to hide. I am. I'm a human. I'm sure you are too. I know that you're a human, but I'm sure you're hiding something. I had to correct that one because I know Pastor Dan is literal, right? Like, you're an alien, right? No. What's what's behind your locked doors, what I'm getting at? Because Jesus isn't like my friend Eric banging on the window saying, let me in. He's already in. He's already in the room. He's just saying, would you turn around and have a conversation already? It's not hidden from me. You think you're hiding it so well, you're, you're not hiding anything from me. Would you just have the conversation? Because I'm not here to yell at you. I'm not here to rebuke you. And look, I'm not gonna tell you that God isn't gonna say, hey, you need to change this. He will. I promise you, he will. But before you ever change it, he'll do nothing but love you. He'll do nothing but extend peace to you. He'll do nothing but extend his love to you because he's not looking for you to be perfect. And the scriptures wouldn't tell us, be holy as I am holy if it were impossible. He's calling us to a new level. He's calling us to a new place. I think it's about time we just say, Jesus, I'm not even going to lock the door. You're already in the room, so what's the point? Well, Jesus, why don't you just come out of that room and let's just like cut that room off my house and move on. I I just want to be done with it. See, I, I, I think we get in these routines. I didn't talk about this first service. I think we get in these routines where we say, you know what, I, I want to change, but I, I can't. <sighs> Sorry. Yeah, good, exactly. Thank you, Pastor. He said it, not me. It's a good excuse. Because I've learned when I really don't want something, I stop doing it. Right? I hate olives. Thank you, yes. See, I'm preaching now. She's like, yes, preacher, preacher. Right? I hate olives. I stay away from them. I don't eat them. What is it that you do that you don't want to do anymore? Change. Supplement it with something different. I don't like olives, but man, tomatoes are fantastic. Right? I love a caprice salad, some basil, some mozzarella, some tomatoes, and olive oil. Come on, the inner Italian that does not exist in me comes out. Okay? So what is your unhealthy desire? Change it. Get a new routine. Get a new system. Get a new something. Get it out and get something else in. Otherwise, you're going to be over here in a locked room thinking, I'm safe. The olives can't touch me. (laughs) No. Come on. If we want change, change. I I think we complicate it as humans. I think the pastor said it great. It's a great excuse. Now, I understand there are addictions, there are habits, and there are things that you will struggle with. I get it. I 100% get it. Me too, Okay. Me too. I, I've got things that I'm like, man, I got to get this out of me. But I, I want to be on the process of getting it out. Of at least having the honest conversation with Jesus rather than just going left around the racetrack nonstop. No, no, I'm going to take a right-hand turn here. I'm going to get away from this thing and have a conversation with God about this. And God, I'm done with it. And he's not going to sit there and yell at you when you do that. He's going to sit there and say, peace with you. And he's going to restore the faith of the broken. Where are you broken in your life? How's your marriage? How's things going, really going? And what are you trying to hide? And then how's your faith today? Is it broken? I I think we all go through moments and times when faith is broken. I got to repair the clutch in this thing. I got to get after the starter and make sure the engine's running right. And God, would you restore the faith of the broken today? That's been my prayer for today as I've been practicing, or not practicing, but as I've been studying and going through my sermon is, do you need your faith restored today?
If I could get every head bowed and every eye closed, the only person looking around is me so I know what to do next. And you're in this room and you say, you know what? Yeah, I need my faith restored. I got, I got a couple areas in my life where either one, I've been trying to hide it or I've been trying to cover it up. And two, I, I've kind of lost my faith that God even is gonna do anything with this or that God's gonna move on my behalf. Or just, man, I just need a jumpstart of peace today to restore the faith of my brokenness. If that's you, could you just do me a favor and raise your hand real fast? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hands everywhere, hands everywhere. You're not alone. See, we, we think we're alone. You're not alone. Another thing I wanna do, you can raise your hand still. That's awesome, I, I appreciate it. But another thing I wanna ask, thank you for that, I saw it. Thank you. You're in this room and you've never committed your life to Jesus. You've never asked him to forgive you of your sins in a public environment like this and to call on him as Lord. If you're in this room and that's you, would you please raise your hand? Thank you for that hand. That's why I do what I do right there. Thank you for that hand. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? It's awesome. Here's what I'm gonna do. I wanna say a prayer and I'm gonna ask everyone to repeat this after me. We do it as a family. For those of you, who, the three of you who just rose your hand and said, yes, I wanna give my life to Jesus and ask him to forgive me of my sins. I'm gonna ask everyone to repeat this prayer. Then I wanna say a prayer for everyone else who, who rose their hands uh, for the first thing I asked. So, can we all just do this? Everyone repeat this and say, Father in heaven, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I was wrong. And whether I've been hiding or I've been running, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose from the dead, extending your love and freedom to me. Jesus, you are my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I do something? I want to pray for all of you who rose your hands real fast as well. Then I want to give a good shout of praise to God as we get out of here. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I saw hands go up around this room saying, yes, today I need my faith restored. I, I, I have things that I've either hidden. I have things that I've tucked away. Whether it be sin or not, it doesn't matter what it is. God, I just pray that we as a people, as a body, would come before you and just have the conversation. I pray that you'd give your, your people great boldness in coming to you, coming to the throne of mercy to receive your grace, to receive your love, to receive your peace. Father, I pray that we would no longer try to hide something from you or that we would run like Adam and Eve did, like the disciples did. But instead, Father, we would just come to you in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our fear, and in the midst of our depression and our anxiety. And we would just come to you and say, God, here I am. And in the moment we do that, God, I pray that you would restore the faith of the broken. I pray that you would cover us, be with us. God, I know that you are 100% always with us, but I pray that, Father, today we would just have an unction of your peace and of your presence in our lives. And when we walk out these doors, we walk out changed people. Not people who are walking around defeated, but people who walk in victory because of one thing. We have a God who came to us and said, peace with you. And so, Father, today we give you all of the praise. We give you all of the glory because only you are worthy. Jesus, all of this is for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Hey, can we give a round of applause to those three people? Come on. There's a party in heaven right now and I will go there with them, man.
It's why I do what I do to see three people raise their hands is the greatest gift any pastor preacher can, can ever see. So those of you who did that today, thank you so much for taking that step of faith. We are going to be praying with you, praying for you. Uh, please come and contact one of us or one of the pastors or, or someone with a lanyard and say, man, today I made that decision. Make it public. Tell someone today on your way out, I made that decision today. My son is waving at me. I love you, homie. Uh, but hey, that's, that's all we've got for today. But make sure you're here Wednesday night, 7.05. God bless you guys. Ladies, have a great time tomorrow at Bunko Night. We love you guys. Peace out. Have a great one.